0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you today as we continue moving forward in our Beauty of Grace series. Today we look at Lesson 56, The Craving of Grace. We've studied about our part in cooperating with the Holy Spirit, yielding and surrendering to Him, which includes counting the cost of discipleship and determining that Jesus is worth it. So now we want to discuss why we can make that determination and the emotion and motive that it incites and brings alive in us. After considering the cutting of grace and looking at the things, relationships, and desires that we may cut away or off from us, Let's consider today why and what it is that we would replace them with if we're cutting them off or that we would choose higher priority than those. Perhaps it's family relationships and other things. God doesn't want us to completely cut those necessarily off. But it might be that we are loving those people or those things more than him. And perhaps we need to reprioritize and refocus because Jesus alone should be on the throne of our heart and our mind. He alone deserves first place in our lives. And so we may need to just reprioritize. Some things we do need to replace in our lives once we come to know Jesus Christ. Some are very detrimental to us. And so we just have to let the Holy Spirit guide us in those things. It may be that we stay away from certain people or certain places, but God will lead us when we are sincere and the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. But all of us need to have the craving of grace. So let's talk about what that is today. A craving is a strong and intense desire or longing It's when we desire something eagerly and almost require it as a need to that level. It's to want something greatly or to yearn for it. In the last few lessons, we looked at the surrendering of our rights and the determining of Jesus being worth such surrender as we love him more even than our spouse, our children, our parents, houses, lands, etc., more than everything else in life. Let's consider now why and how does a person make such a determination? How can this be real inside a person's heart where they willingly yield and give up their rights and their life for Jesus, giving first place, highest honor, and priority to him above all else? So let's consider biblically who are what is the object of our craving in grace. In other words, when you're craving, you're yearning for something or someone. There is an object of your craving. And scripturally, in the Christian's life, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to start out today by considering this from Revelation chapter two. I want us to read verses one through seven. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary." Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Jesus is talking to this church here and he gives them great high points. A, 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 A on their report cards, so to speak. But he gets down to one major thing and he says, I can't give you a solid A on this one because you've left your first love. The church at Ephesus had left it. They used to be in love with Jesus. He used to be their craving. They were motivated at that point to share him everywhere. They were motivated to praise him continually, motivated to spend time with him, like maybe when you would be dating your spouse or early in your marriage perhaps. Remember in the last lesson, We looked at how we must love Jesus most, love him above family, above spouse, above land, above friends, above children, above parents. Ephesus had had that first love. They loved him first. They loved him most. They had him in the highest priority, but they left that. They laid it aside and abandoned it. They omitted it. They dismissed it or passed over it. They didn't take constant care for it. They relaxed it, just relaxed it. They suffered it to become less intense. In other words, they let it become less intense. They lost their fire and their earnest desire for Jesus. They departed from it or deserted it. They left it behind left it alone, gave it up. They disregarded it. They neglected it. They went away from it and gave it up. This word also includes to depart from one place to go to another, to neglect it, to just let it go. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So here he's giving us the danger and the warning of not taking the more earnest heed to what we've learned of the Lord. And he says there, if we don't give the more earnest heed, then we will drift away. He goes on down and he talks about not neglecting this great salvation. So the danger here is in neglect, simple neglect, simple omission, simply being careless about something simply letting it go to the side and not giving it high priority. The danger here is spoken of is drifting, drifting, drifting away, just drifting away. It always makes me think about a boat, of uh, maybe a John boat, maybe a speed boat or something along those lines. And maybe you live on a lake or you're vacationing on a lake. And so you have your boat, you're out in the lake and you're, you know, pulling people that are jet skiing or you're fishing or you're doing whatever on your boat and you bring it in to dock. And when you bring it to the dock, you don't take extra care to see that it is tightly attached when you tie it up to the dock, when you pull it in, you're a little bit careless. You just, you may swing it around, you may, you know, tie it up some, but it's loose. It's not good and secure. Well, as other boats go through and create wakes in the water, as storms may come, rain may come, winds may come, different things will create ripples and waves in the water. And those ripples and those waves will slowly move your boat little by little by little, it will begin to pull that boat. It'll begin to subtly and slowly move that boat away. And when it is not safely and securely tied to the dock, it will drift away. It's a subtle move, it's a slow move, and it's simply caused many times by carelessness when the boat was tied to the dock loosely. In order to secure that boat, it must be tight and it must be intentional. You've got to take care for it. You've got to be guarding it, securing it, and monitoring it. Otherwise, let's say you go up you go out to dinner, you go to bed, next morning you're busy, maybe you've got plans, you're vacationing somewhere, you're going sightseeing, etc. And you come back the next night or maybe the next day after that, a couple of days later, and guess what? Your boat might have slipped and just drifted off into the water somewhere because you were careless, because a subtle and a slow move because of neglect has happened and the boat has drifted away. This is the danger that the author of Hebrews is talking here. It's not something that you may do even intentionally. It may just come from carelessness, a looseness. You're not serious about it. You've got to take care and guard the things that you know about the Lord and what he has already done in your life so that you don't neglect the great salvation and find yourself having drifted away. We don't want to become self-deceived. We don't want to drift away. We don't want to leave our first love. The problem with this church at Ephesus, they loved the Lord, they did, but they had become so busy with the business of the king, Chuck Misler likes to say, serving him, obeying him, making sure they were right and faithful, that they lost their fervor, their craving, their desire to simply spend time with the king. They lost their intimacy in fellowship with the Lord. They discounted their time in God's presence, disesteemed prayer, and those times where we sort of steal away with the Lord, as Song of Solomon says, which shows us a beautiful picture of the relationship of Jesus and his church. Jesus must be our first love. He deserves to be our first love. We should be craving him because he is the object of our craving. When this is real in us, it'll be expressed. It'll be known. There'll be signs and evidence of our craving. This will be evidenced by the heart of one devoted to the Lord, devoted to pleasing him, devoted to loving him, devoted to being with him, one who cherishes precious time with the Lord and desires that, is craving that, is craving intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. One biblical example that comes to my mind is David. God's testimony of David is that he was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14, Samuel delivers a message from God to Saul where God says that he's going to seek out the man that is after his own heart. And in Acts chapter 13 verse 22, it confirms that David was a man after God's own heart. That means that he shared God's heart. What God cared about, David cared about. What was important to God was important to David. He loved what God loved, and he hated what God hated. He cared about the honor of God's name. He cared, yes, about doing right, but he also cared about a relationship with the Lord. He cared about being in God's presence, being close to him, having fellowship with him. He became king. God exalted him. He had the palace. He had the kingdom. He had the throne, but he longed for something more. He was missing something critical that he was craving. I want us to look at Psalm chapter 27. In Psalm chapter 27, David writes this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, or in other words, craved from God. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That word inquire is talking about to admire or to raise him high, to exalt him, to admire him, to seek him. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. David has one longing, one burning desire, one yearning, one craving, and he expresses it here. It's for the presence of God. He wants to be in God's presence. He wants to be in relationship and in fellowship with the Lord. And in those days, that was expressed through talking about the house of the Lord, the place where God would dwell. If you'll remember, God instructed Moses way back to build a tabernacle. And the purpose is expressed in Exodus chapter 25, 8. And it says this, that God wanted Moses to build the tabernacle so that God could dwell with his people. Now by this time, the tabernacle has been moved many times and is in essence defunct in Shiloh. There's still some operation of the tabernacle in Shiloh, but the ark is gone. The ark of the covenant was what represented the very presence of God among them. That's where God would come and dwell in the most holy place. And so everything else about the tabernacle was a tent without the presence of God. The the tabernacle was in essence defunct and the Ark of the Covenant was gone. And the temple was not built in David's life. Remember, if you know the story, that David was not allowed to build it but David was promised that Solomon would build it. So what house of the Lord is David referring to here? He desires this one thing, and that is what he's seeking, to dwell, to remain, to live, to abide in the house of the Lord all the days of his life for the purpose of beholding the beauty of the Lord and inquiring, admiring him, spending time with the presence of God, spending time with the Lord himself in relationship, in fellowship. So this is the house that David is talking about. This is where the story gets beautiful. The details of this event and this desire are found in several places in in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. For instance, 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 15, and 16, so you understand the storyline and what is happening here. What has happened is that the ark of God representing God's presence with them is gone. How did it go? Where did it go? How did it disappear? Well, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 5 through 7 how this happens. The Israelites in in the United Kingdom under Saul at that time, were being attacked by the Philistines. And so the Israelite people say, hey, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let it go to battle with us so that it will save us. No reference to God, the God who dwells between the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant no reference to him. It was an it to them. It was almost like a a magic charm or some formula or some special thing that they could take, and this item was going to fight for them. Almost in a sense, they had made it like an idol, and God would have none of that. And so the presence of God did not go with them. And so the Philistines captured the Ark of the Lord, and Israel was defeated in that war. So the Philistines captured it. Well, they take it and they worship different gods. One of their gods was Dagon. So they stick it in the room with Dagon in his temple, and they stick it on a shelf up there with Dagon. Well, God will have none of that. God is God alone. He is most high. He will not be put on a shelf with some false idol he will not succumb to that, and he will have none of that. He will make sure that he is known to be the living God, not in the same category with these false idols and other false gods. So God sees to it. Dagon ends up on the floor, bowing before the real God, so to speak. So they come in the next morning. Dagon's on the floor, and The Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence is what's on that that shelf or on that pedestal. And so they stick him back up there. Some kind of God, if you've got to take care of your God, that's not a good God to have. Let me just say that right now. So they stick him back up on the shelf, Dagon, and they go about their business, whatever, worship him, do whatever they're doing. And they come back the next morning, well, Dagon's back on the floor And he has been demolished. There's parts of him broken off because God is proving he is the only God. Well, the Philistines, because they choose their gods over the real God, they say, We got to get rid of this thing. We got to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. It's causing us nothing but some trouble with our false gods here. They didn't say they were false, but they believed in these other gods. So they try to get rid of it. They send it a couple of places and it causes nothing but problems there. So they decide that they've got to send it back to Israel. We can't handle this. This is a hot potato. We got to get rid of this thing. Instead of falling on their faces before the living God and repenting and calling upon him, they decide they're going to get rid of it. So they send it away. And so they send it into the land of Israel. Well, it ends up staying first at Beth Shemesh, and Abinadab is there, he has his son Eliezer to keep it for a while, and it stays at kerjath at Abinadab's house, there for 20 years, the Bible tells us. Now, the ministry of Samuel through Saul and into David is longer than 20 years, but it was at this house there in Kerjath-Jeriam for the 20 years, and then Saul asked for it. Notice by David's time, it appears that Eleazar had moved with the Ark when Saul brought it to Gibeah, because when Saul asked for it, that's where it it ended up, is in Gibeah. Now when David becomes king, he is longing for the Ark, not because he considers it as some special magic charm, but the Ark represented the God who would dwell among them. It represented God's presence, and David missed that. David knew that it wasn't among them. God wasn't among them in that way, and David longed for God to be with them in fellowship, in special times, and in relationship, and in intimacy. So he acted. He set out to bring the ark back. The first time, You'll read in those passages that we spoke of earlier, he did it wrong. He did not consult God for the proper order that God had established in his Torah. And so he had the ark put on a new cart. Well, God had said, no, the only way to carry the ark is it is to be borne on the shoulders of four Levites or priests carried through the poles that were extending out from the ark. They were not to touch the ark, but they were to carry it on their shoulders by the poles. Now the kings and the priests and the Levites all should have known Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 18 through 20. And when they went to get the ark the first time, they had no excuse for their wrong behavior. This was where Moses gave the commandment that kings were to read the scriptures daily. They were to have their own copy. They were to write it. They were to read it, have it with them at all times, and be consulting it regularly on a daily basis. So David had no excuse. He should have known. He should have known the right way, and if he would have been reading the Torah, The word of God, if he had had it with him and been continually being faithful in that endeavor, he would have known the very first time the right way to go and get the ark. The priests and the Levites also should have known because they were supposed to be continually in God's word. Abinadab's sons were Levites. So none of these people had any excuse for not doing this right the first time. But David got angry with God, got afraid, and blamed God for it. Well, over the course of a few months after they had left this with Obed-Edom, it ended up that during that three-month time period, God blessed the house of Obed-Edom greatly. So David decides when he hears about that, he wants it, he wants it. He's still craving the presence of God, and so he goes after it again, but this time he's somehow been corrected by God, gotten back into reading the scriptures, finding out the correct way, and he goes correctly and brings it back from the house of Obed-Edom, and we'll find out later if you continue in the reading there and you keep it going for even several hundred years, you find out later, that Obed-Edom and his descendants apparently moved with the ark. They couldn't live without God's presence. God had blessed them so much, they end up moving and following it and become a part of the servants in the tabernacle of David and in the temple later on, even with his descendants growing to the number of 62 still serving God in the temple area. That's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 26 verse 8. Notice also in these passages that we referenced earlier, David prepared a place for this ark. He had pitched a tent for it. He had made a place before he ever went back to get it. And when they went back and got it, there was exuberant joy. Oh, it was excitement with the ark coming home to be with God's people. It was loud. It was boisterous. There was celebration and worship everywhere, singing, music, dancing. This was a big deal. All because David had missed the relationship with God, that closeness. He craved God in real relationship. He craved having God's presence near David yearned for the Lord. He craved him. He desired him. He could not be satisfied until he brought the ark home to its place. This craving for the Lord is what motivated him to action. It's what compelled him to go after the ark of the covenant, representing the presence of God. It's what motivated him to do whatever it took to have his yearning fulfilled so that he could then be close and in sweet fellowship with God. David here shines to us as a glowing example of one who loved God more. He had the palace. He had the throne. He had the kingship. He had bounty of all kinds. He had people that would have gone to the death for him, and yet he was not satisfied because the greatest thing in life was missing. The greatest thing in life was missing. In the New Testament, we see another person who had a similar craving for the Lord, very similar to David's craving. This person also realized that the most important thing was a relationship with the Lord, truly knowing him in fellowship in intimacy in relationship. I want us to read in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first 15 verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law a Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence. Or another translation, another way to understand that would be superiority. For the excellence for the superiority, for the superior thing of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul has listed here a bunch of things he could consider accolades. He could consider them accomplishments, achievements, but he's not satisfied. He laid all of these aside because Jesus was superior. Jesus was his first love. He craved. Jesus in relationship. And he knew Jesus was superior, the more excellent thing. We recently, in in a live class a few years ago, did a study called the Apostles of the Acts. And I'll never forget, I was so changed when I got to Paul. And we began to see the conversion of Paul and, and what happened with Paul. And I was floored at that point. Even though I had studied Paul and I had known about Paul before, I never really realized this in quite the same way that I did when I was studying and teaching that class. And Paul left religion for relationship. He realized that religion leaves us dead and dry. It has no spirit life to it. Knowing Jesus is the superior thing. Knowing Jesus in real relationship, that is what life is all about. That's what the highest goal should be. That's what is our first love. It's the most important craving that Paul had. He yearned for the object of his craving, Jesus. He yearned for his first love, Jesus. Grace has a craving. When we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, it motivates us to count the cost, determine the value of Jesus as far above all else, and crave or yearn for him. When we find him, we cannot be satisfied with anything or anyone else in his place. He is the superior thing in life. He is what life is worth living for. He satisfies when nothing else can. He is the object of the craving of grace. Real relationship with the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future messages in our Beauty of Grace series. Thank you and God bless you today in Jesus name. Amen.